1: How's everybody doing? Pretty intense start, right, to our Sunday. Uh, For those of you that don't know this movie, this is The Matrix. And on March 31st, 1999, the Wachowski brothers released their version of a modern-day action movie that would, when all uh, tallied, gross $460 million in the box office and receive four Academy Awards. Now, we've been talking a little bit about the truth. Pastor Nick has discussed truth. And what truth is. And so this message today is going to be, what do I do with the truth? Opposite Loris Fishburne, Marfius is a cyber uh, prophet. Kiana Reed plays a role as Thomas Anderson, a computer programmer, who operates under the hacker alias of Neo. Very early on in the storyline, Thomas Anderson uncovers the truth that the two worlds that he has come to know. It's at this uncovering that he finds himself at a crossroad. He's offered simply what we just saw here, a choice between the red pill or the blue pill. One pill, as Morpheus says, offers you the return back to your life, uh, normal, with, when you are none the wiser. The other offers you to a journey to discover the nagging question that I feel that we have all asked ourselves at one point or another. What is the truth? Thomas Anderson doesn't know what the future holds, but he's curious. He's forced to make a decision. He, he 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 hesitates. He's curious, but he's a little bit cautious. And just before he makes a decision, as Morpheus said, "All I'm offering you is the truth." Have you ever felt the weight of regret? You know what that feels like when you when you can almost pinpoint where you made that wrong choice. Perhaps you wish that you could somehow go back in time, somehow just go back to that place where uh, you made that decision, but then you realize that it's too late, that these decisions that you have made, you would want to reverse, but you can't. So today in the text, we're going to be in the book of Luke, uh, Luke 16, uh, verses 19 to 31, and we're going to talk about the weight of our decisions. We make decisions every day, don't we, church? Every single day that we get up out of bed, there's a decision To get out of bed for one, right? Uh, There's decisions that we make on our way to work. There's decisions that we make when we're at work. There's decisions that we make when we're leaving work. There's decisions that we make when we come home from work. We We are inundated with decisions. And some of those decisions, church, have implications. Some of those decisions that we make have eternal results. In the text, we'll observe the contrast of two lives here on earth and how... They were different. Next, we'll observe what it means when we leave this place and arrive at our final destination. Lastly, we'll see with great accuracy, and don't miss this, what some pitfalls look like, and most importantly, how we can avoid them while we're still on earth. Let me give you a little bit of background, as we always do. We're in the third book of the Gospels, uh, told by Luke, and we're learning from a different vantage point of the Gospel of, of Jesus. Uh, and this is from Luke's account. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the same story told, just from different vantage points. This would be similar to us if we were to to witness something that happened, and then for each one of us to tell our variation, our version of that story. It's still the truth. It's just our slant on it, and that happens on a regular basis. So what we've seen so far in the book of Luke, we've seen John's announcement of Jesus. We've seen the boyhood of Christ, uh, the preparation for his ministry, the announcement... Uh, and in baptism of Jesus, his genealogy and temptation, and his ministry in Galilee excuse me, Galilee, Capernaum, and surrounding areas. Now in this section, Jesus picks up from an earlier exchange that he had with the Pharisees regarding money. If you remember, he offered the Pharisees, he offended the Pharisees with this No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot both serve God and money. Luke sixteen thirteen. This did more than ruffle their feathers, the Bible says. The Pharisees, verse 14 says, loved money. Okay, They heard this, they started sneering at Jesus. They, they basically plotted to kill him. That was what they wanted to do. And why? Because he had disrupted their plans. They were all about money. That was their entire life. It was about status. It was about uh, a, a place of position. You see, the Pharisees had, had no interest in change. Okay? Uh, verse 15, You are the ones who justifies yourself in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The Pharisees had zero interest in change, as I just said. They'd been presented with the truth, knew exactly which pill they were going to choose, and chose the one that would not, I repeat, would not disrupt their life. The Bible says that they loved money. They loved power. They loved being in that place of position where people served them and recognized them. And they were not about to let that go because some nut job who claimed to be God was going to have them do otherwise. Now, I have to stop and ask myself this question. Why does this sounds so familiar. Where might have I heard that story? A group of people, let's see here, who love money, who, who, who love power, uh, who don't ever want anything to change. Uh, their plans don't want to be disruptive. Yes, I'm certain I've heard that story before somewhere. If you'll just give me just a second, don't be patient with me. It's on the tip of my tongue. Where have I heard that story before? You guys ready? Here we go. Main point one, life on earth is not the same for all. Luke 16, verses 9 to 21. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Immediately, Luke contrasts life between two individuals. Both men illustrate this life here on earth are vastly different. Right away, you can you can't help but be drawn to the beggar's condition in verse 20. Laid at the rich man's gate, covered in sores and hungry, most likely sick or injured or needing of medical attention. What's next, the Bible says, is that he was starving, longing, begging to eat what fell from the, from the rich man's table. Now, allow me to, to point this out. Back in those days, they didn't have, uh, what do you call it there? They didn't have the, uh, the napkins, right? They didn't have the... Uh, the, the, the Swiffer-Sweeper thing there. They didn't have the, the Clorox wipes and whatever else. They used bread. They used the ends of bread to basically sop up all the, the meat or the pheasants or whatever they were eating there and then just guard them, just to throw them on the floor. And so the dogs would eat those things up. So this was, these were really their napkins at that point, cleaning themselves up and tossing it to the floor. Instantly, we're drawn to the story of the imagery when asked, what happened to the beggar? Why, Luke? Tell me, tell me why is he hungry? Well, the reason for their poverty is actually quite simple. and hear me say this, it's not by the beggar's choice, but by the Israelites' choice. Remember back in Leviticus, you know that book that you don't ever want to read and don't ever read? Not you, the person next to you. Back in Leviticus, Yahweh was passing out the rules and guidelines packets at the big merger table. You guys remember that? When he said, I will be your God and you will be my what? My people. Right? And so the Israelites may or may not have been paying attention. And if I had to guess, given their track record, they chose to ignore the section of their lives that talked about their involvement. Instead of them being focused on what, they, what they, their part was, they were focused on what they'd get from Yahweh. In fact, they chose not to listen to the prophets. And let me help you with this a little bit further. Had the Jewish people obey God's commandments concerning the sabbatical year, concerning the year of Jubilee, there would have been little to no poverty in the land. Look with me in the Bible here. Put where your thumb is right now and, and turn to me to Leviticus 25, verses 6 and 7, and read it with me. Okay, let's read it aloud. And the Sabbath of the land shall be food for you, for you and for your slave and for your slave woman, and for your hired worker and your temporary resident who are dwelling as aliens with you, And all that yield shall be for your domestic animals and for the wild animals in which they eat. You know, Exodus 23 says exactly the same thing. Turn over to Exodus 23. And six years you will sow your land and gather its yield. But the seventh you will let it rest and leave it follow. That means basically it's plowed right? And it's unseeded. It's allowed to, to aerate, to breathe. Any farmers in here understand that concept of, of tilling the earth and letting it rest, getting it ready for the next season. Why? So that the poor of your people will eat. Had they followed this guideline set in Leviticus by Yahweh, there wouldn't be any famine. There wouldn't be any problems. But as, as a result, there are. So here's the beggar, marginalized, starving with sores with the dogs that are licking him. Now the imagery that Luke uses is a little bit graphic with the dogs licking the sores. Dogs back in those days were not like the dogs you guys have now, right? You did not spend a thousand bucks on your dog. I'm going to tell you, you did not go on vacation and put your dog in doggy uh, hotel room and whatever else, and get the chocolate doggy mint biscuits to put on his pillow, and it's just the greatest thing in the world, right? You didn't go broke over your dog. Dogs, in fact, in the ancient world were reviewed, and it was actually an insult to call someone a dog. When you're a dog, they were, they were, that, was, that was an insult, absolutely. Had, had not, it has nothing to do with the way we look at dogs today. And so this imagery that, that Luke is trying to project here is that there's, there's scavengers. Even in, in, in the middle of Lazarus's torment, the dogs are licking his, his sores. What about the rich man? The Bible says that he was living quite comfortably. In fact, there are rumors that he was on Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous. Who remembers Robin Leach? Robin Leach, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I, th- I do voices. You didn't know that, did you? All right. Well done. Thank you, sir. And the Bible describes him as this. He was dressed in purple linen and lived in luxury every day. Folks, this idea of living in luxury every day, when the Bible talks about luxury, man, you've got money. You got some money, right? This isn't like, you know, I I have and I'm living paycheck to paycheck. This is deep pockets. Deep pockets. And you can always tell, notice very carefully, when you guys read through Scripture, when you see differences like that, when you see common folk that were in that area— they usually wore, just think about their clothing and their attire back then, right? They would, they would receive wool in, right? They'd go to the market and trade, and people that would trade would, would spin, right? They would make their clothes. Their clothes didn't have color, okay? There wasn't any T.J. Maxx, okay? There wasn't, there wasn't a Marshalls. There wasn't a Macy's. It was brown clothes and Birkenstocks. That's what they rocked. They didn't rock purple. Purple was for royalty, for majesty. Remember what I said last time I was up here? I talked about Lydia. Right? She, she used to take the wool that was brought in and would dye the wool with mullet shells, the ink, uh, the, the ink from the mullet shells, right? And it would spin fine linen, and basically that's what it was. They, she would sell that to the government, people who had money. This is one of these cats here. Probably th- a 1,600 uh, thread count, Egyptian cotton. Purple was the color of royalty, as we said. Uh, this is a guy with wealth amassed probably had 7 camels right one for each day of the week that he got to ride the scripture describes his homes that he had a gate who can afford a gate government can afford a gate people with deep pockets people who tax people can afford gates there were no gates in their homes they they, they didn't have a stone to roll across their their, their, their their there was no door there weren't doors there's no gates this guy had a gate no one, with the exception of government, okay, uh, what did I put here? Uh, government was rich. Uh, what's clear is that the guy had zero care in the world of what happened around him. My guess is that as he enters, as he comes and goes from his home, that as he's passing Lazarus, Lazarus is one of those guys with that homeless sign that you see. He describes himself, describes his situation, and then signs off with God bless. Just looking for the scraps, man. Just looking for a dollar, man. Just looking for a handout, man. Anything that you have. Whatever the case, it's pretty clear that the rich man had a zero concept of what the Torah said about stewardship. He allowed his wealth, and don't miss this, to blind him of the responsibility, and now money had become his master. Are we, are we good with this so far? Have I lost anyone? There's a lot we got to cover, and I want to make sure everyone's awake. You guys good? Good. Main point two, life in eternity is not the same for all. Luke 16, uh, 22 to 23. At the time, the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. Jesus' contrast continues with a few observations. Yes, both men died. However, take notice of that contrast and pay very close attention. Meanwhile, back on earth, the beggar did not even have enough money for proper burial. When you don't have money... You can't pay for your funeral. There is no rollaway plan, right? You can't put your casket on, on layaway and pay for it. There isn't any of that. His body was most likely carried to beyond the walls where they dealt with the garbage, beyond the city walls where they put trash, a, a place where the smell does not disrupt life, where they discard napkins for the meals and swept up, swept up food and garbage, and that's where it was taken. Folks, there, he just did not have any money for this. Even if he could, he couldn't afford it. The Bible says that when he, Lazarus, died, the angels attended to him and carried him away to Abraham's side. Carrying away to the presence of God. Remarkable thought. Remarkable thought. Can you see it? To be carried away by God's angels. The word heaven in this context is not not used. It's not mentioned here in the passage. But it's clear What's unclear is what Abraham's side is exactly. This, and, and, and only in this part of Scripture does it talk about Abraham's, Abraham's bosom, okay, as a representation of heaven. But what is clear, what I can tell you about this, is that after you die, you end up in one of two places. One of two places. And I would argue that Jesus uses this language to help communicate to the disciples that Lazarus was a child of God. Meanwhile, back on earth, there's a contrast in the burial services. One was moved beyond the city gates where the trash heap was, moved beyond into an unmarked grave and remembered no more. The other was celebrated with a burial. Services spared no expense. No doubt, they rolled out the red carpet for the rich man. There was a parade on the streets. The, The best flower arrangements lined his home. Expensive perfume was flown in. The best caterers prepared to serve the who's who of the town the casket was probably handcrafted and made from some rare tree my guess is that there were some pharisees present maybe there was even a camera crew maybe even robin leach while all this was on the way on earth something very different was happening with the rich man take a look Verse 22b, the rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. At first it might seem like a dream. This wasn't the world the rich man had ever known nor expected. He must have thought to himself, this must be some mistake. As he looks around and tries to gain some understanding and point of reference, the very sinking feeling begins to overtake him. The scriptures made it clear where he was. He was in hell. Hades in the Greek. Folks, it's a place, a real place, where each breath you take is filled with sulfur. Sulfur dioxide. Let me see if I can help you with this. In an article written, Acute Chronic Sulfur Dioxide Exposure, an Overview of Its Effects in Humans and Laboratory Animals, renowned Italian biologist Giorgio Bignami notes, and I quote, Exposure to higher concentrates of SO2, that's two hours, increased the bronchial clearance in healthy non-smoking adults. The acute effects of SO2 have indicated significant changes in airflow. In short, you can't breathe. The rich man is struggling to catch his breath. He's having respiratory issues. And no matter where he turns, it doesn't get any better. He starts to wonder if this, this coughing will see, cease or he'll ever catch his breath. And the Bible answers that question. You know what that answer is, don't you, no. Welcome to Eternity. What else? What else do we know about Hades? This is an unpopular topic. No one wants to talk about this, but I'm going to talk to you about it because I love you and because you need to know. Hades is filled with decay and rot. Acts 2:27 says, "Where the blazing furnace from Matthew 13 Awaits those, don't miss this, who have chosen uh, this destination. Let me be clear. Hear me say this. We choose this. That runs counter to what you're probably thinking right now. We choose this. You say, no, I don't. The Bible says otherwise and i'll prove to you later more, later on with an overwhelming evidence that god doesn't send people there we choose it it's a place where jesus said it would be better to cut off your hands and to cut off your foot and pluck your eye out and enter heaven maimed than to enter hell with everything intact mark 9 jesus said that this is a place where the worms that eat there they don't die And the fire is never quenched. The rich man is alone. And in darkness. And in torment. Church, I'm sure that if anyone in here has ever been in a situation where the the true use of the word torment has ever been applied, I highly doubt that. I highly doubt that. This is severe suffering. Suffering. The truth be told, there aren't words to describe what kind of conditions this man had found himself in. The Bible speaks to us more about hell than it does about heaven. Why? So we don't end up there. I assure you, whatever you think you know, whatever you've seen on television, whatever you've heard or read about earth, about pain and suffering, about the most heinous atrocities committed, still would fall utterly short of what hell is like. It's much worse. I've also heard people often say, I hope you burn in, fill in the blank. I assure you, you don't mean that. Because if you caught one whiff of what it was like, you would never say that. Never. If I could give you a more accurate description of it, two things... I am convinced two things would happen immediately. Number one, you would never ever say that again to someone. And number two, you would run to the cross. It's a funny thing where we are right now in this. Because we have yet to get to the worst part of it. Let that sink in. The understanding of where he is is finally sunk in. He's, he's heard of this place before and has chosen to ignore the warnings about truth. He realizes in that very moment he's chosen the wrong pill. Regret begins to overwhelm him. As he squints his eyes upward, he's able to, to make out two figures. They're some distance away, but, but he can't recognize both of them. And then all of a sudden it, clum, it comes clear into view. It's Abraham and, and, and Lazarus are there standing side by side. He thinks to himself, if I could just get their attention, maybe, just maybe, they could help. And then the man does something that he's not often done, and I would argue probably never done. He begins to pray. Look with me, verse 24. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am agony in this fire. Church, do not miss this. Pay very close attention. He knows them both. Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Let that sink in. He knew the Father by name. He's not this this mythical figure that's in the sky. His response reveals his understanding of God, the Father. The rich man isn't in hell because he ignored Lazarus. And he certainly isn't in hell because he's rich. The rich man is in hell of a choice that he made. He knew God and he knew the truth. And he made the choice. And this is the result of that, that choice. Main point three. Earthly choices, as I said before, have eternal results. Abraham replies, But but Abraham oh, excuse me, but Abraham replied, Son, remember that in this life, in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this between us is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. I'll respond by this and ask this question does God answer prayer? How does he answer prayer? It's either yes or no. That might challenge you. It's either yes or no. Wait is not an answer. Wait is a delay before you discover the answer. Okay? Look closely. God responds and gives two reasons for his response. The character of the rich man and the character of the eternal state. The rich man lived for good things of earth and had experienced abundant temporal blessings. He had his reward. Jesus taught back on this, back in Matthew. Remember when Jesus, look with me if you real quick, turn over to Matthew, real quick, Matthew 6, where he says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do with the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. I tell you, you have received your reward in full. Verse 5 And when you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites, for they pray standing in the synagogues and on the streets and to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and show others they are fasting. I tell you, say it with me, they have received their reward in full what reward? Eternity with Almighty God. By choosing to leave God out of his life, neither the character nor the destiny could be changed. Folks, this is not a one-time act. God doesn't operate like that. He continues to reveal himself through his people, through his word. Constantly in pursuit of us. This is God, pursuing this rich man, told in a parable, over and over and over and over and over. He kept offering that pill again and again, and the rich man said, no. Amidst, excuse me, remember what I said about it not being the worst part, that there's more? It's about ready to go from bad to worse. Pay close attention. The Bible says, verse 26, besides all of this, between you and us, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here cannot and nor can anyone cross over there to us. Amidst the stench of decay, the difficulty to breathe, being alone in the dark, the rich man comes to grips with something that he has not yet embraced before, something that he was not used to relying on his money, he was used to relying on his money to provide. There's no hope. There's no hope. He's at the brink of understanding that he's not leaving that place. There is no hope. His money can't change it. His status can't change it. Oh, what he wouldn't give at this point to get out of there you see there comes a time where God decides that that's it we seem to think that there's this this timeline that we have all this time but at some point God says that's it and it's called death The rich man mumbles to himself, if I had only listened. Desperate and overwhelmed, he prays, that I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they may also not come to this place of torment. I can't decide what's worse, the fact that there's no hope or the fact that you retain your memory. The man knows who God is, remembers Lazarus, remembers that he has five brothers, and comprehends what will happen to them if they follow in his footsteps. Verse 29, Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham explained that only one thing that could prevent these five men, these five brothers, from eventually joining their brother. If you miss anything in this message, I want you to pay attention to this very, very carefully. This is the entire point Of this message. If you've been drifting off and texting someone while this is going on, you may want to pay close attention. Because I'm about to plead for your soul on behalf of Jesus Christ. If you hear nothing of this, I've done my job before Almighty God. I'm going to tell you that right now. Only one thing can prevent the five men, the rich man's brothers, and you from eventually joining him in hell, is this, to hear the word of God and respond to it by faith. Folks, if you don't know for certain that Jesus Christ is your Lord, I'm begging you to repent before a holy God. God's desire is not that you spend eternity like the rich man. The fact that that he was rich or ignored Lazarus has nothing to do with why he's there. He doesn't send people to hell. We choose to go there. Why would he do that? How is that possible? Listen, God, God grants our requests. When we push God out of our lives and you die, he gives you what you wanted the whole time. Eternity without him. He's not going to force you to do something. That's not the God of the Bible. He gives you what you want. Eternity without him. The rich man was in hell because of his choice to reject God. It had nothing to do with the former. It has all to do with the rich man did with the truth of who God is. He is the way, he is the truth, the life to an eternity. Listen, if you want to spend eternity with him, then you must hear the truth of who Jesus Christ is through the word of God and respond in faith. God offers the truth to us all the time. He's consistently pursuing us all the time. The problem is, is we're too busy all the time. And if you think you have all the time in the world, you may find out that you just don't. We presume on God. May I have the band and the ushers come up? I uh, struggled with this last piece desperately because it had such an impact in my life. I struggled whether I should tell this or not. Some of you in here may have first-hand knowledge of this, first-hand experience in this. Some of you may have been impacted by this. And I tell you this as we are in view of Valentine's Day weekend, not because I want to scare you, but because I love you. Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, people across America were waking up to continue their week. Somewhere in America, a young man is preparing for the interview that would begin his career, With his whole life ahead of him. Somewhere in America, a mother wakes up from a conference and is eager to get home. She texts back and forth between her kids to tell her that she'll be home later that afternoon to pick him up from school. Somewhere in America, a brand new father confirms that his best friend is going to meet him at the airport at Gate B at 12.30 p.m. He's just been granted special leave to meet his son for the very first time since being deployed overseas. It's business as usual. And tragically, none of these people would ever make it. At 8.46 a.m., Flight 11 hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Less than 20 minutes later at 9.03, Flight 175 hit the second tower. 30 minutes later at 9.37 a.m., Flight 77 slams into the Pentagon, killing 175 service members and all on board. And lastly, Flight 93 crashes in Shanksville, Pennsylvania with no survivors. And here's my question. Do you think that any of those people, those individuals, had any idea that that would happen to them that day? And the number of lives lost... I'm willing to bet that they were people that didn't know Christ. And I'd also bet that they would give anything to put themselves right in your shoes today, to have just one more chance to make that important decision. We don't have all the time in the world, folks. You've heard the truth. You've heard Pastor Nick come up here. You've heard others speak the truth in love. You need to make a decision. Your life depends on it. It's not a game. It's real. And let me challenge you with this. The Bible says, Romans 1, Pastor Nick talked about this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature... Has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. If you think for just a minute that when you leave this life that you'll be able to offer up some flimsy excuse why you didn't accept Christ, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you won't. Brothers and sisters, Because you have, don't hate me for this, love me. Brothers and sisters, because you have been present here today and have heard the truth, the Bible says you are without excuse. One of these days, you'll ponder what I'm about to say. There are four greats, four greats. The great question, how do I get to eternal life? The great deception that I can do it without God. The great solution, what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And sadly, the great tragedy that some people after hearing the truth will turn away and lose an opportunity to be saved. If you would like that opportunity to change your eternal destination, we're going to open the altars here. As soon as uh, the ushers do what they do. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to pray. If you don't know Christ as personal Lord and Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity today for that. Because the last thing that I want to see happen is for you to leave here and have something happen to you and wind up like the rich man. So actually, we'll do that ahead. We'll do that beforehand. So why don't you close your eyes and bow your head. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pray. And you just pray right behind me. You don't need to, 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 to speak out loud. If, if you want to, that's fine. And we're going to give you an opportunity to accept Christ. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this message. Lord, I come to you today a sinner, and I recognize that. I recognize that I'm giving up every clever way that I know how to try to get to heaven. And I need you to do that for me. I ask you to come into my life and grant me eternal life forever. And I'm giving up everything, Lord. Every, every clever way to do that. And I'm just relying on you today. I ask your blessing upon the day on my brothers and my sisters and on this church, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray this. Amen.